0: This is Billy, singer of The Bad Reminders. I'd like to thank Punks and Pubs for featuring our music, and I encourage all of our fans to subscribe to the podcast and check out some of the previous episodes as well,
1: maybe even discover some of your new favorite artists. Today, you'll be discovering The Bad Reminders. We
0: just released a new album called Hits and Misses, and it's available across all streaming platforms. If you like what you hear, you can find us on social media and our personal website, thebadreminders.com. Instead of looking us up right now, just sit back and enjoy our song, in descent right here on punks and pubs.
1: Eternal world
0: People, my name is Liam Bird, and this is the Punks in Pubs podcast. What's Uh First thing you might notice is the audio. It's a little different. I'm currently in the process of moving flats. I have moved into a new flat, which is a site. I've got a lot of work being done to the flat, so it's very harsh sounding. Nothing's up on the wall. I'm recording this in the bedroom, and at the moment, all I have in the bedroom is a mattress on the floor, and that is it. The audio will get better. I've got a little nook in the flat that I'm going to kit out and uh, create a little studio for myself. But that's not going to happen until early 2020, probably January January uh, 2020. So please bear with the echoey introductions until then. It will get better. Apologies from me. Something else that I've been working on apart from moving flats. I have been conducting a couple of cracking interviews for you guys. One with the Bouncing Souls and another one for a book called Burning Down the Huss, which is about the fall of the Berlin Wall and how punks played a part in that in East Germany. Fantastic book. I can't wait for you guys to hear those two interviews. They'll be out in the new year. Uh, something else that will be coming out in the new year is new merch. So, the Punks and Pubs t shirts are now completely sold out. The white ones are never to be done ever again. So, I'm now thinking about what I can do for merch for next year i could just do the black version of the t-shirts or i'm open to suggestions so if you do have any idea of what kind of merch we should be doing at punks and pubs hit us up at punks and pubs on all the socials let's crack on with episode 45 because merch actually plays a huge part of this episode week i am sat down in a london boozer with jay Kier, the founder of a collective called punk ethics and an anti-sweatshop campaign group called no sweat now this is actually the second time i sat down and interviewed jay as the first time sadly got lost when my hard drive decided to end it all and die along with several other interviews for Punks and Pubs that unfortunately will never be heard. But I reached out to Jay, and Jay very kindly said that he would be happy to re-record. This is what we spoke about. So in this episode, you will hear us talk about Jay's past campaigns with punk ethics and that includes work with a comedian that I hugely admire called Mark Thomas as well as a Burmese punk outfit group called Rebel Riot and I discover that Jay actually wants protest me fun fact. Jay talks about the grassroots group called No Sweat and in particular his campaign called punks against sweatshops a campaign that is trying to get people like myself and you to think more about where our merch comes from away from punk ethics and no sweat we discuss john Lydon's appearance on i'm a celebrity and how the word sex was actually jay's gateway into punk rock i will be back after this interview to give you a bit more information on how you can actively support jay and the punks against sweatshop campaign but until then enjoy episode 45 with myself and jay (laughs) Come <laughs> So, we are, funny story, uh, we're doing this again. Uh, so, I am with uh, Jay, uh, who um, is one of the co-founders, or one of the, um, yeah. yeah, co-founders? Yeah. Of, of what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funk ethics. Sorry. I thought he was going to say no. We're not, I'm not a co-founder. I'm just... Uh, I was one of the, uh, I don't know. I didn't know if I wanted to take all the glory. Um, but we're, So originally we recorded this in Tottenham in the summertime. And we were just talking about actually that there was a football game going on. And this time, the uh, reason we're re-recording this is because my hard drive decided to go kaput. I was, very, I was a bit pissed off that some of my interviews got uh, taken away. And Jay has very kindly offered to do it again. My memory is dog shit, so this is going to be completely <laughs> new again for me. But we're, this time we're in King's Cross from North London, across from um, a bookshop. I don't, I've never been in there, but for my understanding it's quite a left-leaning bookshop. So mm. Not an anarchist bookshop, but yeah, it's... it's an
2: iconic left-leaning bookshop.
0: Yeah, um, and then also you told me where we are now is a strip club. Used to be, used to, used to be. To. Yeah, not, it's not now. <laughs> not in a strip club right
2: now. We're now in a wanky sort of hipster bar or something like that. But that's the way Kings Cross has gone. It, yeah, we it was actually. Yeah, again, we
0: were just talking about Kings Cross like ten years ago and how it used to be a bit uh, dodge, and you couldn't walk around here without either a prostitute offering you something or a drug dealer offering you something. Um, and some people would rather it go back to that, and uh, some people like the idea of eight pound pints or whatever <laughs> the fuck that just cost me anyway we're not here to talk about the history of london uh, i'm here to talk about um, punk ethics and uh, what it is that what what's that about tell people what it's about and so on so i think what'd be great is if you kind of just do a a, a summary of how punk found you and uh, why
2: punk has stayed with you i suppose yeah well punk found me when i was actually a little kid so i was about i think i was 11 years old when I don't know if, people might remember bank accounts they <laughs> used to be a thing now it's online but, but you used to have to when you opened your first bank account I think you had to be 13 like to have an, a you know a debit card and all that sort yeah. of stuff my sister was a couple years older than me, and she got her first bank account at that age so I'm 11 she's 13 and she got vouchers for HMV and I didn't <laughs> Obviously, up to it. it's that whole you know, sibling thing. like, what the fuck? She gets to have... The- so we went to HMV and she spent her vouchers and my mum kind of took pity on me and pointed me over to the bargain bucket, you know, cheap CD section. Yeah. There. And I um, said, go on, pick something out of that. And I picked up the Sex Pistols CD because it had the word sex in it and I was you know 11 years old went this is awesome <laughs> and I don't think my mum paid much attention she was kind of went yeah on the counter and I went home with the sex pistol CD. so I mean obviously that, that image is iconic it's yellow and pink and it's very well, bright this was a bootleg scene oh was it okay <laughs> it, was, it was like a shit <laughs> thing with like some dodgy looking thing but it had sex pistols written in very big letters yeah. so I was like yeah fair enough <laughs> and, um, but then when you opened the inlay on the inside inlay cover was this iconic picture of Johnny Rotten in like this green tartan suit that looked like looked like a tramp suit, you know yeah. torn to pieces and stuff. And bright orange hair and these green teeth, just in the middle of an on stage snarly pose. And I just fell in love. I was like, that is fucking awesome, you know. Mm. And then listened to the music and discover things like Anarchy in the UK and God Save the Queen, and sort of like spoke to my parents, going, what is this? And they're like, what the fuck have you bought? Oh, <laughs> you know? And then had to explain, you know, what Anarchy meant to an 11 year old and stuff like that and all this sort of stuff. So that sort of stuck with me. And being one of those people who, I, I think, I don't know what, how, to, how to describe it, but. I have got that sort of musical thing or I remember having that musical thing when I was a kid where sort of like this is mine you don't understand this kind of yeah. attitude, you know, at school everyone's into take that or whatever it was. It's like fuck that, I'm into this. You yeah. don't understand. So I discovered something that no one understood because it hadn't been around since nineteen seventy seven. You know, so, so what was, year was the school, sorry, what? this was so I was what my I? I was born in eighty two, so I was eleven, so this is nineteen ninety three around that sort of time. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah, and take that with a height of their fame and all that sort of shit I basically sort of got into the music become obsessed with the sex pistols at that sort of age and then by the time I was sort of 14 I think I went to my first punk gig mm. um, it was Brixton Academy I went to Fuck Red in 96 and I turned up with my spray my hair's been spray pink I've ripped up a Union, back, <laughs> uh, Union Jack t-shirt that yeah. had written anarchy on it <laughs> <laughs> like, like a good Steve Jones man would do you know, that kind of thing and turned up and then discovered Mohawked Punk with stud leather jackets went who the fuck are these guys (laughs) I completely forgot about the sort of postcard picture punk thing you know what I mean and then but, but when you're a little kid and you see like a whole gang of Mohawked guys who all seem like six foot tall and Stunned leather jackets, yeah. You shit yourself and go, Jesus Christ. Did you go speak to them, or were you very much like, I'm no, ne- was, never talking I was to them? Absolutely terrible. I was with yeah. my sister, so she was 16, so she took me, and her best mate was really into punk but more modern stuff. He knew about you know other, other punk men, yeah. and um, so he was all sort of, he became my mentor and he was introduced to me and stuff. He was about five years older than me, and then we just went to his gig and i was sort of like you know just a shy little kid who went down to the mosh pit and got the shit kicked out of him i remember when peter and the test tube babies came on and i'll sort of stand next to a guy who seemed really normal and then pete came out on stage and this guy just turned into a crazy world and started <laughs> spitting and frying shit on the run away run, and got trapped in the mosh pit and stuff like that
0: so was your sister into that kind of music then or was she just like you were you were bugging her like to no, take me she, take she me, was, take was me. a metal. oh she was she like, yeah.
2: big time metal so that was our kind of trade-off like I couldn't like certain bands because they were her property yeah. so I got the Sex Pistols. she got Hole and stuff like that anyway. <laughs> yeah. and Cradle of Filth she went down a deep dark cradle of filth phase uh, just
0: very quickly talking touching on cradle of filth did you ever watch cradle of filth's anime that they created Ooh. oh my god no nope. everyone go on youtube watch cradle of filth's anime It is the shittest anime but so shit <laughs> is perfect um sorry carry on no, it's, uh,
2: yeah, they they used to wake me up in the morning because there's that song of that what the fuck album it was, it was, uh, at the um i think it was an intro from the dracula movie with Keanu Reeves and that it was like the children of that oh, night. Oh yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. I used to wake up with fucking that shit screaming out next door. I <laughs> mean the children of the night and then this screaming and I'd be like, oh, "For fuck's sake!" <laughs> and you know, turn like, crank up Anarchy in the UK, so <laughs> a sort of blast at trying it out. Your poor um, parents. I, I mean, know. Just yeah, yeah that. That just completely. So, <laughs> so just very quickly going back to the
0: fact that you said that your parents then had to explain to you what Anarchy and Punk was. Well, was it something that they they embraced when they were younger? Like, because obviously, eighty what you say born in 82 so it would have died out brackets big rabbit yeah. rabbit ears and that um, in, in the peak era again rabbit ears of 77 to 79 so yeah. obviously they, they were aware of it yeah. was it something that they like traditionally feared like oh my god punk is horrible or not, was it they quite embraced it
2: not quite my mum was a little bit older at that point you know she was like in her mid-twenties so got out of that sort of teenage period Yeah, and her thing was I discovered later that she was big into her reggae when she was younger I found a <laughs> whole bunch of like 45 things with Jimmy Cliff and all Trojan stuff I was like oh you know? Yeah, she didn't tell me any of that. I don't think she understood what she had it was just her phase when she was a kid um, but then my dad had missed that because he, he went to work quite early so he he was like 18 in 76 so I think if he hadn't if he'd gone to university or something he mm. might have like carried on that well, but he, he used to have long hair and he'd cut it all off and became a very smart bloke going to work something sort of and uh, he understood what he was but when I asked him about it they thought it was Johnny Rotten who was dead not Sid Vicious they would <laughs> forgotten Sid so yeah. feed me all this information and I'm like no this doesn't make sense he's just brought out an autobiography yeah. How is he dead? And He's on uh, the butter like, no. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. That came later to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> that was a tragic moment for everyone. But um, <laughs> I mean an endless star of tragic moments for that man, but, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time back in the early nineties, when he he sort yeah. of disappeared before the whole um, I'm in the jungle, get me out of everywhere is. Yeah. Which I have to say I did what before then, he he was off the scene, like he didn't mm. really he was a historic figure. And then I remember the day I was sort of sitting around my mate's house getting stoned and it came on and he put this TV on and up came button Johnny Rotten yeah I like, oh Christ you're going to ruin my life I mean, all my you know, childhood <laughs> memories like are just going to disappear and so I didn't want to watch it and then the one time he, he sort of knew it was on and then went back around there a couple of weeks later and he turned it on and it was when they'd done the what is it Ant and Dec come out and say right we got the vorts in I won't do the accent, but yeah, you know, get the votes in and all that. And, and I don't know what accent you're going for. I didn't know, I know if you'd been Johnny Rotten or if you're trying to be Geordie, like is it. The Geordie accent. Uh, okay, I'm, yeah. I'm not very good at a Geordie accent. <laughs> I'll trail into a Scottish accent too quickly. But whatever it is, you know where the, they, everyone phones in or whatever it is and someone has to get evicted?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And Johnny Rotten's desperate to get out of the jungle by the sounds of it. <laughs> and they come up to him and go, John Lydon. You're staying, and he just went cunts <laughs> on live TV, you know. And I was just like, Oh, you beauty, you've done it again. Yeah, it was like the Bill Grundy moment all over again. I was like, It was a proud moment, yeah, which saved him from that old TV show. But he followed it up with a fucking butt which, <laughs> which ruined people's lives. But <laughs> well, they're certainly a childhood memories, anyway.
0: Did you have you just go on a whole Johnny Ryan rant? Have you have you seen did you watch the because I think this came out just after we finished our interview. Where they were promoting punk and he was pissed on stage I with saw. Rollins and yeah. um uh Marky Ramone and uh Duff McKegan M- yeah. yeah, weirdly Duff <laughs> was there. And um I don't know I don't remember the lady's name, uh, someone from L seven, sh- yeah. yeah. Uh and it was just a mess. Like yeah. if ever you've seen like a man fall from grace, it yeah. was that point. And yeah. It, like literally trying to offer Marky Ramon outside. <laughs> <laughs> Marky's like, sit hilarious. down, you
2: fuck. <laughs> you fucking idiot, sit down. Uh, it's, yeah, it's like... I just oh, remember man. the Henry Rowling bit where he sort of like said, we haven't met before. He said, no, we fucking haven't. And <laughs> had, a, had a go at him about slagging him <laughs> up in the past.
0: My favourite thing in that video is when he's proper going at Marky. Uh, Henry whips out his phone and does that thing about... He doesn't want anyone <laughs> to see him record, but he knows it's a magical moment. That's it. Right. Uh, yeah, hilarious. Anyway so <laughs> so it's from the Sex Pistols was it a natural progression like when I say natural was it like you found out about the Clash and then the Clash led you to uh, I don't know the Buzzcocks and the Buzzcocks so yeah. yeah I yeah,
2: I was a kid so I bought the best punk album in the world ever <laughs> volume <laughs> volume one yeah. I think and um yeah and, I mean that's where I discovered the uh oh god what are you called Mark, the Ramones right mm. it was like Sheena as a punk rocker and yeah. I was just like when you listen to the sex pistols on one track and then suddenly it's Sheena is a punk <laughs> and you're like the fuck is this mm. but then once you learn the history and to understand it in a wider context you're like alright oh, and sort of appreciate it more so I, I mean I had a like I say my, when I went to that first gig the Fuck Reading gig my sister's mate was a mentor and he sort of started he said you know fuck the sex pistols that's all bollocks check out No Effects and check out Rancid and stuff like that so he brought me into the American punk quite yeah. quickly so I kind of I knew about the clash but I'd read Johnny Rotten's uh, autobiography, Rotten, and uh, he slagged off The Clash to so being a loyal Johnny Rotten affixion. You know, I was like, fuck The Clash, right? That's, I'm learning who I need to hate. <laughs> Which I then <laughs> had to unlearn later on. Because you know? <laughs> that man will just teach you to hate everyone except him yeah. and the sex whistles. Um Well, probably yeah, even the sex whistles yeah, at some yeah, point, yeah. A lot of it was how <laughs> fucking shit everyone else was except him. Yeah, so I got into no effects, and, and then 94... Wait, no, yeah, so 93 I got into sex business. 94 Dookie came out, yeah, and that yeah, changed, and, and, yeah, it changed everything. And um, the offspring, offspring,
0: no effects,
2: rancids, yeah, that that era, yeah. So, although I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't mean I was literally sitting there in 94 going, oh, This is punk, but very quickly that filtered down into my little 14 in old world, mm. um, and sort of understood all this sort of stuff. So, I just, yeah, you know, I didn't spray my hair pink anymore, I didn't need to rip up a Union Jack t shirt, I mm.
1: could
2: work out a whole new. World, you know well this
0: is your punk now i suppose because the punk before the sex pistols wasn't really exactly, in, in yeah. again rabbit ears it wasn't our punk because that was in the 70s where about 94 era i would say for our generation that was our punk moment exactly. that was no effects right yet yeah. exactly. and they didn't look like traditional
2: no, no i like bought Japanese. a pair of bondage trousers and didn't wear them for very long no. <laughs> 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 because i them? was I was full no i don't <laughs> thank god yeah <laughs> pinstripe bondage trousers are quite something yeah. Well, 14-year-old legs, can you imagine what else like. <laughs> <laughs>
0: punk has like played its part in the early stages so when you've gone on to create punk ethics now um yeah. so punk ethics from my understanding started in 2015 so so obviously that's a big gap from 94 to 2015 oh, no. so during that gap obviously punk is still playing its part in your life but the old the, the idea of what punk ethic is and that's the most i'm not going to ask you it because it's the most dumbest question of what does punk mean to you because i if you ever be interviewed by anyone <laughs> who asks you that question just say fuck off I'm not talking to you um, that's my own impersonal it means butter adverts yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. it means a nice crumpet um but yeah so from that period why did the ethic of punk why did that kind of what you believe punk was stayed with you from whereby sometimes it'll probably leave a lot of people from the age of 14 and then also girls drinks drugs or whatever kind of takes you over your life why did punk continue to play its part in your life
2: um it's a good question. I think because I was kind of yeah, you know, I come from the suburbs just outside London, down south east of like town called Swanley, and there weren't any punks arounds. No punks in the school. Yeah. You know, it just wasn't a thing. And even when um, punk came into more the mainstream, like yeah, you know, with Green Day and stuff, it didn't really. Cut, it came into the mainstream in some respects, but Green Day's massiveness came much later. Mm. So it was still in a certain genre. You know, well, I was going to. Uh, pubs, you know, being a bit underage and sort of sneaking in sort of thing. There was, there were rock pubs so you knew that kind of, you were in that world to so yeah. understand what group Dookie Duke it was. Then Blink-182 came out and I remember kids at school loving that Blink-182 stuff. That was, I can't remember the fucking name of the album now. Uh, Animal of the State. That's it. Yeah. That's when it infiltrated into the mainstream and I was suddenly defending what punk was and that sort of, you know, like yeah. that's not fucking punk. Yeah. And I think that might have, you know, Randomly thinking that that might now have made some impact on me in terms of like what punk is and what it means to me in that sense, mm. and going no, that's not punk because you like it. Yeah, <laughs> but it's the commercialization of it really played a part. So I understand the punk as like no, punk isn't a commercial thing. It's something beyond that. It's, it's got its own world and explored what that was through discovering different bands. At some point when I was around eighteen or something, I discovered. Um, anarcho-punk, and like the whole Subhumans, Crass, and all these kind mm. of bands, and brought in the politics, and at that kind of age, you, you're generally becoming a bit more political anyway. Yeah. So, or, or at least opening up to politics, you know, I went to university and, st- and ended up studying politics, so I introduced to the ideologies, and an- anarchism stood out as something, and that definitely trapped back to the anarchy in the UK thing, like, having that memory of Asking my dad what anarchy was, and him sort of going, like, it means nothing. And I'm like, <laughs> what do you mean means nothing? It must mean something. Like, they got a whole bloody song about it. And he couldn't really express what it was, but it piqued my interest, you know what I mean? Like, oh, that's, there's a whole philosophy around it. So I sort of started reading about it, then discovered there's a whole punk genre connected to it. So that really came into, you know, just seeped into me as a, a, the politics and the punk kind of mixed in. And I think as I've sort of progressed, politically and sort of like chosen my direction in life. Politics have stayed a big part of my life, so punk's also stayed a part of my life. Mm. And then punk also has an element of building a community, you know what I mean? Like a lot of I think this is this is the case for most people who discover a subgenre like punk. Maybe others as well, but for me and people I know, especially punk, it creates a community outside of where you are where you were born and where you grew up. So I've got friends who've never left you know their hometown. They Left school, got a job, had kids, got my blah blah blah. You can discover punk. You can suddenly discover a whole new world, and you move to new places. And anywhere you go in the world, almost there's a set of people waiting to meet you. You know, I mean, you can go to bars, you can connect with people on the internet. I've travelled all over the world now and met, you know, punks from like Burma and stuff like that, where you have that shared connection, and it's got that shared thing of punk gigs, the politics, the clothes, the Mm. music. You know and it sort of brings people together so yeah that's why I think it stayed, for, stayed with me for so long I've forgotten the question <laughs> no <you're trying laughs> <to pass it. laughs> you kind of asked then
0: you started creating Punk Ethics so why did you go what, well why did you want to create an organisation like Punk Ethics so it might be an idea to actually explain what Punk Ethics is yeah, yeah. and <laughs> then explain
2: why you did it so Punk Ethics is a small collective um, basically me and a couple of mates who I can drag in most of their time who do things that that push the progressive elements of punk. The progressive politics of punk maybe, but you know, broadly that kind of ideal. I, I feel like punk as a community was basically you know, you can that horrible question of what is punk, there's an element of it which is, you know, throughout the history, there's that anti authoritarianism, there's that, you know, fuck you to the status quo. That's kind of what punk's built on. Mm. And so within that there becomes this progressive element of politics. Although there's the Nazi punk element if you've got Conservative punks come from somewhere. I feel like that's almost tagged on as people having personal politics, but also liking punk bands. Yeah, you, know, you get a Tory that's punk. I think you interviewed a politician. I did. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. That was really interesting to hear her talk about Tories who like punk bands. It's like so, yeah, Fucked weird up. things like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, so that kind of gives you an idea that you can. I think just because you have your personal politics doesn't mean necessarily you are. Uh, to explain that. The personal politics and punk don't necessarily align. Punk and what it, where it came from has a certain thing, and that progressive element runs through poli- through punk. Yeah, and so the idea for the punk epics was to kind of foster that in some ways and to do things to foster that. This also came because years before, when I was a student, I got into an uh, anti sweatshop campaign called No, no Sweat, um, and this this came from generally like being bullied as a kid at school, you know, yeah, you know, being a little punk the only punk in school sort of thing at a time when everyone's wearing like Ralph Lauren mm. it really mattered what shirt you wore when you were at school it was, a, it was a school uniform and they were wearing fucking Ralph Lauren <laughs> shirts so I'm like the one's from Asda's you know? <laughs> my mum bought it what the yeah. fuck so I get my head kicked in because I didn't have Ralph Lauren or Yves Saint Laurent or whatever so I learnt this thing about sweatshops and my comeback was fuck you they're made in sweatshops <laughs> not really understanding why it was and then as I got older, I discovered what a sweatshop, you know, worked out what sweatshops were, found out there's a campaign group that protests against them. I was being politically awakened at the time, so joined them and have been involved in that ever since. And so for years, like through the early 2000s, mid 2000s, we were doing um, regular no sweat benefit gigs, so mixing that punk and the politics. Like, you know, punk is one genre where it is benefit gigs are the, the main thing, you know what yeah. I mean? It seems like. Uh, they probably exist in other other subcultures but they're, they're almost ingrained as a passion you know spent years doing No Sweat Benefit gigs then I was overseas for a while and I wanted when I was coming back I wanted to do something that was not necessarily tied into No Sweat and that sort of stuff but gave me the option to mix punk with other areas mm. so I sort of came up with this idea of punk ethics I thought it was a catchy title and, and then just worked out what the fuck would I do with it and then when I came back to like 2015 very quickly hit upon trespass which was the first big thing at so,
0: so trespass you worked with uh, mark thomas a comedian called mark thomas who's very political and he used to have a channel 4 documentary which that's how i found him in my youth when i couldn't sleep he was like 11 o'clock at night channel 4 doing these fantastic documentaries about uh, like the arms trade or, or or whatever but the way that he did the documentary was very like anarchist himself that he very much got himself involved in the documentary which is very unusual for documentary makers to be the focal part of the documentary so he was smuggling himself into like a fucking arms trade and then get uh, politicians to essentially admit to genocide in their own country or using british bombs to 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 bomb their own people which was against the geneva convention or whatever it was and so when I, when i found out that mark thomas was a part of uh, trespass that obviously piqued my interest because for me he's one of the most underrated comedians in the UK for A his political work and B and just how fucking smart he is so what? how did you end up working with Mark Thomas and how did you engage with someone who can come across I think as quite uh, hard
2: to, to have that one to one interaction with I don't know I'm kind of guessing I've never met the guy no, I, I mean to be honest he's a lovely man who mm. when he's because he's a, a performer he's obviously what's the word big and loud and brash mm. but in a very beautiful way so he will talk the hind legs of a donkey kind of thing but everything he says is really engaging, and really interesting he goes i mean going back to no sweat he supported no sweat over the years doing benefit gigs and stuff like that so i've met him here and there nothing major um and then i was out in australia and i bumped he came out to do a show so i saw him in the bar and just chatted to him and reminded him of no sweat yeah. so coming back to the UK a friend of mine told me that he was doing this this random thing where he was going to do a spontaneous almost pop up comedy gig on the banks of the River Thames So on the north side near Tower Bridge he said everyone meet there at two o'clock or Sunday or whatever and we're going to march to this place which is technically public land sit down and have a, have a gig and this public land turned, to be, turned out to be the, not the balcony, but like the, the riverside balcony almost of um, some big corporate company. That for some reason they built their building on the riverside, but they built it right through the public walkway, a public right away. So they officially had to let any member of the public walk through their building, go and sit on their little veranda that overlooked Tower Bridge and all this sort of stuff. It was really weird. So he discovered this and decided, we're going to just march in there. 100 people, sit down. And it was beautiful because he just we w- went up to the place and there's no security guard. I think his scooter guard was in the toilet. <laughs> and he presses a button and some intercom somewhere doesn't, you know, just goes, OK, yes, come in. You know, yeah. you've, you've got the right to do this. It's obviously someone's job just to let the public in. And 100 people go marching through, <laughs> sit down, get ready. The security guard comes out of the toilet. You see him like, look through the thing, just... His face was a picture of, like, <laughs> what the fuck? I'm getting you know, fired, you know, fuck. Quiet, you know, sleepy yeah. Sunday. So on, there's 100 people in the on his veranda. And he just let him get on with it and say, if anyone needs to use the toilet, let us know. It's very nice. It was a great gig. And this was part of his, sh- his new show, Trespass, which was all about reclaiming public spaces. And he was talking about how, in London, one of the, almost every street you walk on, is owned by a corporation or owned by a, a private interest company, mm. um, and so the South Bank is an interesting one because that's owned by an organisation whose name escapes me, but it's ostensibly like a, a trust, yeah. But it makes it private land. So if you if you, we wanted to do this on the South Bank, we would have to write to them for permission. They would charge us a load of money, and yet it seems to be a public walkway because it's you know, public has a right of access. You can walk on it. But if you stay to protest there, you're suddenly on private land. Okay, yeah. So he pointed out in this show was, we were watching that the beach of the River Thames wasn't, was like a grey area. Mm. We've since found that it's owned by the Queen, so it's still technically private land. But at the time, we went, all right. So he talked about doing a little barbecue down there, and the police came along and told him to put that light out. <laughs> and he said one of his mates went up to the river, like, it was the river police, You so sailed along in a boat, you can't have a fire here. And they went up. Looked at the waterline and went, Your jurisdiction ends here. <laughs> and they went, and sailed off. <laughs> Carried on having their burgers or whatever, you know. And um, so he told me that story and I chatted to him afterwards and said, That's fucking amazing. Do you think we could do a punk gig on the beach of the River Thames then? And he went, You absolutely could do a punk gig, and if you do, I wanna be there. So, hmm. so it's like, alright, so went away, spoke to a couple of bands. Contacted a mate of mine, Keith, who, who's in a band called Flowers of Flesh and Blood, and he's connected to DSI Studios so he could supply all the gear we needed. I was like, he's well, well up for it. And then I got in touch with Roy Palloy, who I thought, take back the land is their thing, right? Get him down from Scotland. Now they are up for it, and now emailed Mark Thomas and went, Hi, remember me? Uh, <laughs> We're doing it. <laughs> do you want to come along? And it was like fucking over the moon. So he came down and compared the whole show. And we nice. filmed it. And if you go on punkepics.com, uh, there's a whole little 20 minute movie that, all about it. The next year, we decided to go back and do it again with Conflicts, which was just unbelievable. It was that year that it was interesting because the first year, we are all there and we had the genius idea of wearing high vis vests anyone in a high-vis vest looks official and they get away with it. So when a bloke himself in a high-vis vest came along and said, oh, I didn't know anybody this. what's going on? We went, oh, it's all right, we're just doing this thing. He uh, we went, oh, all right. <laughs> and walked off. For some reason, between that date and then the following year, like that was September 2015 to September 2016, buskers and stuff had discovered that you can't busk up there, you'll get harassed. But if you go down the beach, you can sing up to the thing and people throw money at you. So the powers of B decided to crush this by saying, oh, no, this is owned by the Queen. This is a bylaw that says this is private land. So, fuck off. so they literally printed out a bylaw, laminated it, and sent blokes in high visits down to harass all the buses, buskers and tell them to fuck off. So we met the sand artists who are down there all the time. Yeah. And they're kind of tolerated because they're just drawing pictures in the sand, whatever. And, yeah, I suppose there is a public right of access to it or something and they told us about this like, oh, it's not like it was last year nowadays there's these guys and like oh fuck so we turned we decided to make it a protest against the Garden Bridge which is Boris Johnson's well Jane Lumley's stupid fucking idea um, <laughs> The multi-million waste of time <laughs> one um, of many so we've all there was a whole campaign around that you know local residents were really up in arms against it so we sort of joined forces with them and said look we're doing this anyway they, were, they turned up the year before and done a little speech we thought you know, we like you guys, come along let's build this into a big protest for you guys. They were well up for that. So when we rocked up and along comes the, the little man in the, the yellow jacket and his bylaw on the bit of paper, we went, oh, well, that's great, but this is a protest. We have a right to protest. But no, I don't think so. <laughs> and he was just like, all oh, right. And they all sort of, there was a couple of them, and they sort of huddled together. And I got over here and went, you heard, but you know the score. We've been told, anything to do with the Garden Bridge, we'd leave it alone. So we're going to let you do this for now. <laughs> but we're going to have to call the police. And the police came, saw 500 punks on the beach and went, uh, you're not going to be here long, are you, lads? <laughs> 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 no, no, we're clear up and everything. We'll just be here about two hours, do a gig, and then go. Yep. And they are like, oh, you didn't let us know. "Go no, by law, technically we don't have to. This is a protest. Yep. We're not marching anywhere. It's not an intro. And like, All right. Okay. So we got away with it but it fucking gave me a heart attack the whole thing was so stressful <laughs> my hairline got a bit thinner <laughs>
1: this is a public service announcement with we'll get
0: From trespass, did that start getting your your uh,
2: mind going, going? What 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 else can we do? What can we do next? Yeah, definitely. This, I think, we done a few things after. That. The next thing was, I think it was two thousand sixteen. Was the forty years of punk? Hmm. Boris Johnson was still mayor of London, and he it was forty years of punk sponsored by the mayor of London, mm-hmm. Boris fucking Johnson, mm-hmm. <laughs> which just seemed like a joke, almost insulting, really, and. Um, yeah, there was advertisements all over. So we dug into it and found out that there was like a PR company behind it. And it really felt... It's that thing of like, what is punk? Yeah, punk is every everyone's. But it's also, it's not that. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> like, you can't commercialise it in this way. And, and when, I think it went on for all year or something. Around the, the website they said, if you want to do a gig get in touch we can advertise it's like fuck you we're doing gigs anyway we've been doing gigs for the last 40 years I, I, I
0: have a, a little confession here um i worked with the london museum on their creation of the uh punk exposition that they had there um, did you remember the protest outside yeah that was me <laughs> was <it? laughs> there you go punks come together i needed a job if i'm honest no, fair someone someone fair 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 approached me and said um london museum are going to do a uh like a uh, an art exhibition uh, about punk music. Would you like to be involved? And I was like, yeah, sure. Like, let's do that. But it's, it's funny that you protested. <laughs> yeah, no,
2: I mean, to be honest, it wasn't that. That one was just it was at the tail end of it, and we hadn't done anything. But everyone was moaning about it as mm. a, in the sort of wider punk scene. That because it was mayor of London, Boris Johnson was sponsored. I think was it was it. also sponsored by a. I think it was like Shell or some yeah, shit like that. That's yeah, it there was a lot of shit around it, and so. um it was getting to the end and we just thought, well, let's do something. Fuck it. When, mm. And it was the Museum of London and they were having a debate with some you know, iconic punk stars like nobody you've ever heard of, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. It's probably the band I couldn't remember. That's it. And the question they were posing was, is London still punk? So we just went, yes, we're here. We're doing a gig tonight. <laughs> you, should, you should come. <laughs> so we literally made a, uh, like a mix CD of all the local bands. <laughs> And done that and you know some flyers for some gigs hmm. and then a big sign saying like bollocks it's punk London sort of thing and then went down and, and protested. We got met by the local police who <laughs> were all prepared for us and And the Museum of London had sectioned off a little corner for us and we went fuck off we're not going to that little pen <laughs> and just sort of stayed outside. So we'd done, done that as it was fun but it had a sort of undercurrent message. Nothing against like Museum of London's great and the Awesome. but it was that element of like yeah punk doesn't belong in a museum Yeah, it's yeah. a thriving social movement Yeah, or artistic movement or whatever when they it so that was like one thing we'd done then things just keep cropping up along these lines like another one was Brewdog so you know Brewdog obviously have IPA punk yeah. which you know you might like it you might not you might be annoyed at the very notion of it you might not I was always a bit like meh whatever drank it it's not bad you know blah blah But then I heard that they were sending out legal letters to people, and there was you about this guy somewhere in the Midlands or something who went to set up a bar called Draft Punk. They got a cease and desist letter from Brewdog, and that fucking pissed me off. I'm like, hang on, you might have a beer, you don't own Punk. Mm. (laughs) So I got together a bunch of promoters, and we uh, we drafted a a mock cease and desist letter from Punk. That it comes. and just, it was supposed to be a bit tongue in cheek like we are punk yeah, <laughs> we've yeah. been watching you for a while no, yeah. <laughs> we like your beer but now you're just taking a piss <laughs> and then through our connections we got oh, something like 200 bands from literally from California to Japan bands from Argentina Burma Thailand all signed this open letter mm. so it was fucking be- It was a beautiful moment of all punks sort of phone each other up going like doom are up for it yeah great and all this sort of stuff and then just put it out as a thing, and it got picked up by some of the papers as a little, you know. Yeah, because I think slaves are really pushing that, wasn't slaves, they? Yeah yeah, 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 they signed up and one mm. unit and a yeah. whole bunch of others. There was Oi! Being the Scottish <laughs> the contingent, you know, they were just like, yeah, fuck these guys. Because <laughs> it's funny because um, when I was thinking about
0: like the title of this this uh, podcast called Punks and Pubs, part of me was like, I wonder if Brewdog will like get in contact and go, Oi! what are you doing
1: <laughs> but then I
0: was like if they do it'd be a great fucking interview yeah. just to go and talk to them and just to see what their fucking punk ethics is Can't. what I'm interested in is, is something that you did as well was called punk solidarity punk solidarity I can't say the fucking word now Punk Solidarity T Solidarity Thank you <laughs> With uh, punks in Burma And I believe this is, came about Because these Burma punks Were basically helping Homeless people in Burma I'm guessing Because you kind of Touched on it before That you were travelling In that region and Is this how you found out About this, this group of people Helping yeah, homeless yeah.
2: They Well my connection with Burma Goes back a, a way to so when the Tories got in power I decided to fuck off and leave the country rather than stay and fight it's to my shame but I did I got to go to Thailand to so the northern area of Thailand my partner at the time got a job out there so I was just sort of tagged along and went and worked for a uh, a migrant workers group so in the north of Thailand there's like or in Thailand generally there's like 3 million migrants across the border from Burma mm. Burma was under a dictatorship for like 60 years it was literally isolated from the rest of the world for decades and has only recently just opened up and the history of the place is fascinating. And that whole recent story is very interesting around Aung San Suu Kyi, the famous leader who has now gone into, sort of got into power mm. and has really disappointed everyone's put it mildly. Genocide. you know, um, <laughs> if you don't but, know about it, <laughs> girl. yeah, definitely yeah. check out. So, so at the time I was working there, she'd just been released, and it was a learning curve for me. Sort of, it was kind of frontline sweatshop stuff to an extent. They were really working with the workers that were working in sweatshops, and I got you know close to that world as possible. Um, and so through them, met loads of Burmese people, and Burma's actually made up of different uh, ethnicities like mm. Shan and Kachin and all these others. So there's whole different languages and stuff like that and that's part of the oppression in the country is all these ethnicities, I think there's eight different ethnicities and the Burman are the the, the powerful ones the dictatorship is Burman and they oppress very bloodily a lot of the uh, ethnicities, so I sort of learnt all this stuff, and it was fascinating but at the time we weren't going, people were sort of. Aung San Suu Kyi at the time was just been released from prison but she hadn't gone, she certainly hadn't got to power and she was calling on people not to travel into Burma because it just funded the dictatorship that still yep. existed. That eventually changed when they liberalised a bit more and it opened up. So around two thousand and fourteen I got to I decided alright it's okay to go in into Burma now. We'll sort of go and check it out. And being a punk everywhere you go, you look up the punk scene, see what the score is and found out there are punks in Burma. And it was fascinating because they're like Um, we're both punks and neither of us have Mohicans some Mm. of us because we don't have the hairline of the (laughs) Mohicans but we don't have the studded leather jackets punk sort of changed in fashion and culture has developed over the years in Burma it arrived in the mid 90s and it arrived with the Sex Pistols it arrived from like year one and so over the last 20 years they really it's that growth of punk in 20 years mohawks and studded leather jackets are still very much part of punk so when you turn up in a country it's 40 degrees Celsius and someone's wearing a leather jacket with a t-shirt shorts and flip flops and there's a bright blue make and you're just like fuck it out <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> yeah. and in a culture that's so conservative my partner at the time was walking around with like facial piercings and people would just like you walk through a market people just stare mm. it was like so to, for that was like the kind of cultural conservatism that existed to have a blue mohawk was fucking brave in that kind of culture so we went and met these people and met a guy called Jojo who's like a, a bit of a um, spokesperson for the punk scene out there. And he's banned the Rebel Riot and their whole community which is called the Rebel Community. They just were amazing guys and in terms of the stuff they do with their Food Not Bombs project is literally going out into the streets and feeding people. And the difference between there and here is I mean we have homelessness here and you can't, I'm not taking anything away from that but there is a huge we've got a third sector that deals with homelessness as part of of this thing. There is a a certain element of a safety net. Out there, there is no safety net. There are families living under bridges, you know, people on the streets. It's a fucking dire situation. So for them to sort of like, these young punks with blue mohawks and studded leather jackets to make a load of food, go down to the street and just start serving it up to anyone and going and looking for people and stuff, it just created this whole picture that was like inspirational, you know. Made me... Kind of put me to shame in terms of the politics I'd done in terms of the stuff in the past because this was really frontline stuff. So, they, I just absolutely fell in love with what they were doing. Spoke to them, with, you know, kept in touch with them. Um, said I was heading back to the UK and I sort of said to them, Look, I'm the you know, done benefit gigs for no sweat over the years. I want to do a benefit for you guys, and it's tied in with that birth of punk ethics for. We're doing something else. We'll let's do a benefit for these guys under the Punk Ethics banner. So, what band would you love in the UK to do a gig for you? And I thought they would go, fucking, Sex Pistols? And i would just be like, yeah, tone it down a bit, you know. I don't know, <laughs> know how you get the Sex Pistols to reform, but, you know, or something yeah. like that. And they went the restarts. And I'm like, yeah, brilliant. They live down the road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can do it. <laughs> so I came back, got in touch with them, and they're like, yeah, we'd love to do it. They knew about them. they obviously in contact through Facebook and all that sort of shit. When we have done this benefit gig, I think we have done a couple and we raised a couple of grand for them. Which out there to give you an idea of the, the impact of that, six hundred pound is about the average annual wage. Like six hundred quid is probably more than you would earn in a whole year. So for us to send out two grand to a little community of punks out there to say, look, do what you want, build your punk scene, is a huge thing, you know. And they've spent it on a computer so they can do loads of their own uh, DIY stuff. You know, everything we take for granted. They bought computer equipment and a camera and stuff like that and put on a, another gig and stuff like that. So yeah, that was the whole thing we got to them and then we decided to try and bring them over and we'd done a big crowdfunding campaign to bring them over and crowdfunded five grand to bring them on the tour and it was historic because it was the first ever um, tour of a band from Burma, as far as we know, any band from Burma, mm. but certainly a punk band in the UK. Um, yeah, and it was. And, yeah, they got to visit the Hundred Club, and they got to walk around the whole area. And they done. There's a guy called Aiden who does a Soho Punk Tours, yes. who's fucking amazing. Yeah. If you haven't interviewed him, no, he's to, on my list. He's, he's on your list, list. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. He took him around and showed him everything, and they got introduced to Jeff at the Hundred Club, who you've met, Tom, yeah. And yeah, he took him backstage yeah. and had a photograph saying he got to write a name on the wall. Was like, yeah, it was beautiful for guys who genuinely, when you come from that kind of. Poverty, essentially, you know, mm. a country that's been so isolated in the world. The idea of suddenly coming to London when it's such a, you know, far-off thing to be in the centre of it and then being, playing, supporting conflict to two or three hundred people was just a legendary experience.
0: So, so uh, was there ever an issue in actually transferring money to Burma? Because I'm going to guess, like...
2: Massively, but yeah. But
0: yeah. I'm going to say, the government must, uh, that must ping a few uh, red lights <laughs> somewhere.
2: The transfer wasn't so much the problem, it was the visas that were the real problem because yeah. and you interviewed Kerry McCarthy, yeah, she's a politician. She I wrote her a letter not realising that turned out she was a punk and she was on the some subcommittee in parliament about um, Burma. Yeah. So she was well up for support in it. And I think she wrote a letter off to the powers that be to help us get the visas because we filled out the form sent it off and they just rejected it because mm. they assumed it's just another bunch of people trying to get into the country or whatever bullshit they yeah. reject on the basis and part of their rejection was you, when we sort of spoke to some lawyers about it to try and find out what the problem was we found out you need to give evidence that you've got something to go back to like a bank account i told them that none of us have bank accounts and I spoke to an activist over here, Burmese activist. Like no one has a bank account in Burma. Mm. It's not a thing. You put your money in a bank, it disappears. And like, why don't the British government understand that? They know this shit. What the fuck? <laughs> they, <laughs> they were there. To, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. They fucking started it. So yeah, it was. It, we had to go, you know, jump through several hoops to try and get them the visas. But luckily, through the help of people like Kerry and stuff, we managed to get them in. And yeah, it was an iconic moment.
1: Demon!
0: that we're kind of having this conversation was um apart from when i originally reached out <laughs> before we had our first interview um i reached out because you there was this video that was created that had all these uh um members of community of punk uh coming out to so, like craft propaganda uh, petrol girls um, and it was this video about sweatshops and why these certain bands weren't gonna um, have their t-shirts supplied by these organisations that may have links to sweatshops so talk a little bit about um, Punk
2: Sweat and, and how it came about like I said I, my background was anti-sweatshop campaigning with No Sweat mm, sorry No Sweat I just no called it, I it Punk Sweat, sweat. <laughs> that's a good name no, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's like the two hats I wear, there's this activist group that I work with that are No Sweat and then there's the Punk Crew to do the punk epic stuff and then I managed to blend the two by coming up with this campaign idea. Part of it was just the simple hypocrisy that punk is very progressive at his heart despite all the surrounding you know the frayed edges. There's the progressive element a lot of the songs are all about social justice and promoting this sort of stuff. We basically thought about it and thought there's the issue of punk singing about social justice in one form or another. Fuck bosses, workers' rights. Regularly. yeah, But when it comes to the T-shirts, I don't put much thought into where it comes from. The idea was to merge the No Sweat campaign, or, yeah, the No Sweat politics, with the punk stuff and create this Punks Against Sweatshops campaign. And we decided the way to do that was to create a short film promoting it. So then we just reached out to a whole bunch of different groups um, and had some amazing successes, like managed to get older of Jello by Aphra, George from Propagandi, Dick from Oi Plooi, Crass was like Penny and Steve from Crass and just went and asked them what do you think about sweatshops and just had a general chit-chat and through amazing editing by Robbie uh, partner Robbie did this fantastic job editing I should give a shout out to Kim who did an amazing job filming Um, pulled together this intense little seven minute film that really gets to the core of the issue and while the um, Great spoke- people have come out of this who are great spokespeople. who's Ren out of the Petrol Girls, who is fantastic. She's really taking issue on board. And she points out in, in the film, like, you can't really be in a feminist punk band when you're swe- selling sweatshop t shirts because 85% of the world's garment workers are women, you know. And it's things, it's statements like that that really grab your attention. And it's kind of, I don't know if it's gone viral or such, but it's really, it, the I think the hits on the video are in their tens of thousands. Um, we've been contacted by people in Spain, people in Germany, you know, even out to uh, Croatia and places like that. People got in touch, really behind the idea. And then on top of that, um, we managed to get Rebellion Festival took us up on it. This, this part of this comes is connected to um, No Sweat has a T-shirt project, yeah, which is uh, basically a campaign. With, so with No Sweat. We've been campaigning outside Nike and Gap and all these shops for like 20 years. We've recently created this project to take it inside the garment industry, found a workers' co-op set up by former sweatshop workers, source blank T-shirts off them, get bands to buy them and print on them, and then take the profits and fund garment workers' unions that are inside sweatshops fighting for people's rights. So it was a bit of a circular economy we created. So mixing the two elements together, the punk, Punk's Against Sweatshops campaign almost became a vehicle for that because I managed to bring my punk friends and my activist friends together and create this movement. Um, And so out of a vehicle for that, we're we're not just bitching about an issue. We're not just sort of saying, oh, sweatshops are bad. We're saying sweatshops are bad. Look, there's a solution here. This this is an example of how things can be. And if you care about stuff, source your T-shirts from No Sweat. That will help fund the fight against sweatshops and gives an example to other companies to think about trade unions and think about workers' rights and think about all this sort of stuff. So that's what we've been pushing through that and like I say, the film became a vehicle for that and has really taken off to a point where festivals like Rebellion contacted No Sweat and said, yeah, we want to get our T-shirts from you, Mm. which is fantastic and hopefully they're going to do the same next year. So how do you continue to push that idea though of of ethically
0: sourced T-shirts? Because you're going to get bands like, like the No Effects, like the, the huge, probably the biggest punk band going, No Rancid, those kind of bands, and then also you have got the bands, the garage bands down the street who might not have the money to try and raise like ethically sourced T-shirts, and but like through the loom might be the only option they have.
2: I mean, how do you how do you reach those people? To some extent it's working with screen printers because a lot of bands will just go to a screen printer and say we need t-shirts for our tour, sort it out and they'll half the time look for the cheapest option because everyone wants something cheap and go that direction. By putting in a campaign sense and putting that idea of punks against sweatshops out there from the start bands are thinking about it when they go to a uh, screen printer they say I don't just want the cheapest sweatshop shit you can find. Let's talk about something more ethical. Mm. And then screen printers are looking to other companies. I think that's where like the no sweat idea is to foster a small company that if that can grow and lead by example, then we can say to you know the Fruit Looms and Guild and Snows people, if we can do it on no budget with a bunch of volunteer activists then you, multi-million dollar company that you are, can easily do it. There's no excuses. So that's the idea behind it. In terms of bands, we're not we don't want to be the punk police. We're not like putting pressure on anyone. We've set up it's basically a volunteer thing. The way we're taking it forward now is we've set up a web page on the website where people can download a logo, use it as like a badge of honour almost, like we are part of this campaign. And then they can upload their their band logo to put on like a wall of, you know, bands that are signed up to the campaign and they're all linked to their band camps and all that sort of stuff. So when you if you go through the thing and you wanna buy it, you see your favourite band, click on it, it'll tell you where you can buy their t shirt, you know. And so we're hoping that kind of idea builds just generally builds and just sort of grows and fosters other bands and eventually growing. Wider and wider. We've got on the on that thing. We've got the bands that are on the films. We got everyone from them down to bands you've never heard of from places you've never heard of. You know, like we recently got in touch with a festival from Croatia called Sick as We Are, who I hadn't heard of. Turns out it's a fucking awesome <laughs> hardcore festival in, in uh, Croatia. They've just gone completely anti sweatshop. And it's a bit like if they can do it, mm. fucking no effects can do it. There's no excuses. Yeah, they often say like, oh, we're you know, it's about quantity and stuff like that, but. <laughs> The ethical fashion industry has grown massively. It's got its problems, but you don't need to be going for the cheapest sweatshop shit. Even if you find a company that might have issues you know, in the in the supply chain, at least they're trying something, and that's the idea behind. it. So say if there's a
0: person listening to this now who wants to make sure that their T-shirts are supplied by an ethical company, would you recommend that they come to your website, and then from there they can click on uh, a link that would take them to a... a, a um, a t-shirt printing company that will be able to do that
2: is that something that you provide to some extent in terms of no sweat we're literally pushing the project so if you want t-shirts go on nosweat.org.uk and you'll find the contact details to buy blank t-shirts we as an option sort of like connect with local screen printers so we can arrange a whole thing for you. if you've got a local screen printer you want to work with that you're friends with or whatever we can send direct to them And the idea is just to get out there to as many people as possible. So if you're, I mean, screen printing for punks is a a very popular job option. So if you're a screen printer and want to get in touch with us about sourcing from No Sweat, please do. But the idea is if we can grow this project, we can then fund more trade union movements that are fighting against sweatshops around the world. Essentially, it provides a strike fund. But when the workers have been fucked over enough and they want to go on strike, the problem is you're going to lose your wages. If you get this fund that you can tap into to help, feed your family (laughs) while you're on strike fight for your rights that's what we want to see happen so if we can grow this t-shirt project it has the knock-on effect of impacting a much bigger audience so it's not just yeah, making you feel good because your t-shirt's organic or whatever. It's like you know, it's a bit more fucking bo- bollocks to it than that.
0: But away from punk, the idea of fast fashion is something that I think is kind of taken over in recent times. So you got the, like yeah. organisations like Primark, bo- uh, bo- Boohoo, uh, ASOS, Target in America, like where you can buy like cheap quite cheap products and um, some people would state well this is just where else i can afford my clothing so how do you reach those people because it's kind of like the same idea of where we're, we're in this country in particular we're talking about like ethically sourced food as well like but you're, you're going to pay a premium sometimes for that kind of food how do you get through to those people who it is just a money issue of well they're selling t-shirts 50p at primark so i have to go that because that's just how much i can afford
2: No, to be honest, No Sweat took years before we'd take on Primark. We were taking on the big companies, everyone like Burberry, Nike and stuff that did expensive items that were essentially made in the sweatshop. And your T-shirt cost, you paid the worker tuppence to make and you're selling it for 50 quid or something. Mm. That was uh, our initial thing. We didn't want to attack working class people that couldn't necessarily afford to shop these places. (laughs) But then Primark became Primarni, you know what I mean? It, it just got to that stage where it was so popular, we yeah. had to take it on. So we started protesting against them as well. Today, it's like, at the end of the day, if you're a working-class person who can't afford to shop outside of the cheapest, then don't beat yourself up about it, because that's totally normal. Sweatshops are ingrained in society to a point you wouldn't even believe. You know, The socks you wear, your underpants... It's not just necessarily T-shirts. We, t- we take on T-shirts, and particularly in the punk scene, because that is essentially a luxury item. When you go to see a band, you buy a T-shirt as a, as a treat, you know what yeah. I mean? Especially when you're paying 25 quid in some place and stuff like that. So if that's the case, then those bands could sacrifice a couple of quid and make sure they're ethical. When you're buying your socks from Asda's, and they're probably made in China in some sweatshop, fair enough, that's what you can afford. You can't afford to source organic bamboo made socks or something like that if you can great do it because you know, the more you put into that kind of industry and turn away from sweatshops essentially the cheaper that stuff becomes the more people the more, you know, it's an economic process that the more you spend on it the cheaper these, the prices get so hopefully that will grow Certainly, a case with no sweat. Our prices—we're hoping to bring down next year. Just as the growth of the project has grown, it's going to push the price down, which makes it better. The workers are still earning a decent wage, but economies of scale—the more you order, the the cheaper they can sell it. I think. So that's where we're working at at the moment. But yeah, again, if you can't afford it, don't beat yourself up about it just get involved, you know, get in touch with No Sweat and lend your support to a campaign that shouts about workers' rights. At the end of the day, we're not going to shop our way out of the problem in any situation. The, The way No Sweat tackles it is we promote workers fighting for their own rights. We work in solidarity with sweatshop workers who stand up for themselves. They form their own trade unions, stand up to their bosses and say, you know, we've had enough, we want decent wages and conditions. And that's the way forward. It's you know the, the shopping element is just, is secondary. It's mm-hmm. just an example of what can happen in our case, and it's also an example to the ethical industry that focuses a lot on the organic stuff and the environment, which is really important. But when they say, "Yeah, we treat our workers really nice," that's bollocks. Like, yeah you, you might treat your workers nice but there's a supply chain where workers get fucked over and workers need their rights protected they need solidarity they need collective bargaining they need trade unions and that doesn't exist too much in the fashion industry so when people
0: think of sweatshops though, they might think of like the bangladesh uh, they might think of turkey they might think of china but that's not the case i know and in the uk the, is there a sweatshop issue like in leicester where that textiles is still a, a massive industry there
2: yeah massively i mean funnily enough one my first things back in like the early 2000s with no sweat was to go down the east end sweatshop hunting and we found a lithuanian woman working in a proper victorian looking building with a chained up fire escape and we found the, the coat hangers for top shop and found out she was being paid like two pound an hour it was in the early 2000s well above below the minimum wage and we exposed that we went back five years later and found out all that industry had shut down and what was left people had said it had been gone out to the far east and other places mm. but what was left had moved largely to Leicester and at the moment there's still a massive problem with sweatshops in, the, in Leicester as an organisation we want to do more about it but we're very small there's only a few activists so there are other organisations out there that do similar stuff we've got to give a shout out to Clean Coast campaign Labour Behind the Label and War and Want there are three organisations that do some great stuff People on Planets another one how much of them are campaigning around this stuff I'm not too sure but then the Britain has a strong, uh, you know, it's diminishing, but it has a strong trade union movement, much more so than places place like Burma. There is money to invest in campaigns there. So for us, it's, we will support a trade union going into that place and unionising, but it's the trade unions that have the power and the ability to fight for those workers. We're a solidarity campaign that's looking worldwide to places that need support from the West, from the rich West, you know, to build their own solidarity. Uh, yeah it's definitely a problem uh, it's something that we want to we encourage more people to take a look at
0: so with my bbc cap on uh and trying to play both sides there was an mit um study that stated that it's the first step of out of poverty sweatshops and they support um uh families to to be able to um buy food pay for rent or or, or uh, have um clean drinking water what would you say to them how, how would you counter that argument against an organization like MIT and would you say like they're being very counterproductive in in releasing this kind of
2: report I'd say it's exploitation no matter what at the end of the day that like MIT obviously has a study in of interest behind that study there's a guy in Oxford who has produced a, 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 a economist whose name I can't remember but has written pretty much the opposite kind of study so there's and a lot of these things are influenced by politics, right-wing and left-wing politics, so there's that element. But at the end of the day, whilst the argument that sweatshops save people from poverty holds water to the smallest extent, that it's a choice between you know, exploitation or starvation, that's true. But when it comes to exploitation, you know, you're making clothes for a massive organisation like Primark or whoever, who make millions of pounds the trickle-down theory doesn't trickle down fast enough to the workers that are making it. They're being exploited while the money is going elsewhere to shareholders. So that's a problem in itself, that the direction of the money is going away from the people who have made the clothes. On top of that, there's a whole theory around communities in developing countries where sweatshops pop up, because often it's the areas where labour laws are least acknowledged and placed like that, that a sweatshop will pop up and a company will go and exploit everyone. And they'll usually employ young people, women in particular, people that, who are seen culturally as more vulnerable and easier to exploit. And then issues of sexual harassment come in and stuff like that. So the problem be- goes beyond that basic thing around wages and conditions to a whole magnitude of different problems that arise. And that is something that, A, shouldn't be tolerated, You know, just for the sake of, oh, well, at least they're not starving. You know, and the workers themselves that's certainly that's don't tolerate They stand up for their rights. They just you know often find they're being sacked if they do yeah. so that's where the where you need the solidarity from the West and through trade unions but what was found recently through these uh, an economist, I can't remember who's, who the name, but they pointed out that if you get a community in Bangladesh and you set up a sweatshop and everyone's off the streets now so they're getting employed but they're on a slave wage they can't afford to look after their families they're suffering, they don't have the money and their life is torn apart but they aren't starving, that's one thing but if you increase their pay to a decent minimum wage and give them time, you know, an eight-hour day so they can go home and look after their kids, things that and you take for granted, they spend that extra money in their local community and it becomes a, an economy, a growth of an economy inside that community, in the local shops and markets and stuff like that. And it raises the level of, of the standard of living in that community. So the argument... That that people say oh well at least they're not starving is like yeah that's true but you're also keeping people down you're oppressing them if you increase their wages and give them decent hours and conditions you raise their standard of living and that's how you foster growth Like in the uk sweatshops existed under, well, i mean they exist now but historically sweatshops the word sweatshop comes from victoria london you know that sweated labor where you're working all the hours god sends and you have your labor sweated out of you we managed to abolish that through a trade union movement because we recognised that that wasn't a, a decent way to live. And by abolishing it and putting in things like minimum wage, well, minimum wage different thing, but you know, decent out, regulated hours and conditions and wages and bringing that up, it massively improves society. And so we've now just pushed that on to developing nations and said, no, you need this because otherwise you'll starve. Mm. Fuck off. You're exploiting people. Let's call it what it is. It's exploitation. Let's wrap this up then. So how can people
0: actively get involved either with punk ethics or um, um, I'm about to say punk sweat again but it's not my mind is gone to shit man punk's against up. thank it's you good. I am just like to state to the, to the audience I'm starting to get ill and my mind is starting to just like <laughs> die on me um, so yeah so how do people get involved in that and um, how can people
2: find out more information about what it is that you do so the best thing to do is go on either Facebook and search punk ethics or go to the website punkethics.com and you'll see all this stuff you'll see the films of trespass the history of what happened with Rebel Riot and stuff um, and you'll see the, the latest campaign which is the Punks Against Sweatshops campaign if you're in a band or in a, if you're a screen printer or any way connected to t-shirt, punk t-shirts um, or you're a punk that has some connection to t-shirts you can sign up your logo and sign up to join the campaign and we want more people to spread that logo around around the scene so it's more recognisable if you've got contacts of other bands, encourage them to go ethical and start sourcing ethically. It's obviously a push for No Sweat to put shoehorn in the, the T-shirt project, but that T-shirt project helps fight the, fight against sweatshops, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. So we, we feel fully justified in you know plugging our own campaign. Um, so you, know, you can source from No Sweat. You can, there are other ethical brands are available too, but <laughs> No Sweat are the best. Um you know there's that sort of stuff if you're interested in the sweatshop stuff you can go to nosweat.org.uk and there's loads of information on there about sweatshops in general get in touch with us we're more than happy to speak to people and find out what can be done campaign wise and we want to build more campaigns the more people want to get involved the better
0: Perfect. Well, thank you, Jay. Uh, I apologise for me just being a bit shit, and oh mate, I feel awful. And, like slowly, as the interview's gone on, like I've really enjoyed this conversation, probably better than more than the one we actually recorded before. But I just feel myself just lagging, going sure. down. Um, but no, thank you, man. Thanks for like taking the time to re-record thank this, you. and um, yeah, uh, get involved. Uh, obviously, some things will go up on social media and get the links. But
2: I just do one shout out. We are looking at doing a punks against sweatshops benefit gig or a promotional sort of gig in at the 100 club in june 2020 so check that out and at the moment depending on when this goes out we're currently doing a crowdfunder for no sweat where if you donate some money you can get a no sweat campaign t-shirt and a punks against sweatshop t-shirt and that crowdfunder is to help us expand the t-shirt project and grow so if people are wait when does that
0: finish yeah end of november i'll make sure this goes out before november should, yeah. cool well thank you very much Jay and uh yeah all the best man. Cheers, please.
1: I'll give you motherfuckers rations I'll keep you up all fuck!
0: jay for taking the time to speak to me uh, again if you liked what jay was talking about and want to support no sweat in their work to help to continue to campaign against sweatshop exploitation and fund independent trade unions and workers groups around the world you can do that by visiting nosweat.org.uk and go support them financially or by raising their profile on social media by retweeting then liking their work if you're in a band make sure you go to punkethics.com and educate yourself on their work, and why your band should look at how you're selling your merch. Right, that's it for this episode. Thank you to the Bad Reminders for sponsoring this episode of Punks in Pubs. Make sure you go check out their new album, Hits and Misses, and if you would like to sponsor an episode of the podcast for free, then email punksinpubs at gmail.com for more information. Until next time, if you go into a punk show and you see someone fall down, you pick them right back up again. Bye-bye. the hole,
1: for